because we work across the state in both rural and urban areas, we do try to gather as much information as we can from our key stakeholders through needs assessments and surveys, which that information absolutely informs the work that we do. But it really is interfacing directly with individuals, whether they are family members, whether they are individuals both with autism and experiencing an emotional or behavioral challenge, as well as educators to inform the work that we do on a day-to-day basis. Welcome to episode three of the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. This week, our host, Jeff Sheen, talks to Dr. Verity Rodriguez, who is an educational consultant and psychologist at TRIAD, or the Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders. Dr. Rodriguez works in the school-based professional development team. She also runs her own integrated behavioral health clinic within the Division of Developmental Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. In this episode, Dr. Rodriguez talks about her work with mental health and autism. So Dr. Rodriguez, it's great to be able to visit with you today. Thanks for being on. Verity, can you tell us a little bit about what you do for a living and how you came to be in this field? Absolutely. So my current role uh, is at the Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders, um, which is uh, TRIAD, um, at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, in my role at TRIAD, I am uh, both an educational consultant as well as a clinical psychologist. And so my background is actually in special education and school psychology. So I got my master's in special ed and my uh, doctorate in school psychology at the University of Oregon. And uh, that was many years ago, but during that time, I was really focused on uh, systems level consultation to address emotional and behavioral uh, difficulties in children, as well as providing coaching support to teachers to better serve and uh, provide supports to students uh, with emotional and behavioral disorders. So when you were back in your undergraduate days and you were kind of trying to figure out what you wanted to be when you grew up, why special education? What, What led you into this field broadly? You know, since I can remember as a young child, um, I've always felt passionate about working to improve outcomes and improve the quality of life um, of individuals, particularly children, um, children with disabilities and learning differences. I had some experiences uh, in my younger years, a friend of very close uh, friend of mine uh, who had a brother with autism, a younger brother. Um, and that was sort of my first experience with um, an individual with autism. And that definitely helped to shape my interests and and uh, and kind of shape me as I grew up. You know, in high school, I always enjoyed uh, working with younger, uh, younger children, helping either tutoring um, or nannying as well. And, uh, and then I had several experiences, uh, you know, through my own lived experience um, in my early 20s where I um, experienced some anxiety and depression myself. And so all of those things sort of really shaped my direction to go into the mental health field. And, uh, you know, school psychology specifically um, was something that I was very much drawn to because that's where children spend most of their time. And, you know, they're in the schools and that's a great opportunity to improve access uh, to to care for, um, for kids who need it. So how quickly in your studies did you kind of figure out what you wanted to do? Or were there some seminal kind of experiences along the way that kind of gently nudged you to where you're at now? Or was it always just kind of like a a straight shot to where you are? 
Oh, that's a great question. I definitely wouldn't say it was a straight shot as my undergraduate degrees were in anthropology and international studies <laughs> with a focus on Mesoamerican history. So, um, but, um, you know, during my time in undergrad, uh, I was very, again, very much interested in um, education and also helping to increase access to care for underserved populations in particular. So when I was a junior in college, I studied abroad in Honduras and um, studied um, the educational system there and did a qualitative study where I interviewed families um, to you know, gather more information about what was meaningful to them in providing an education for their kids. Um, and that was, I would say, a very impactful experience for me. You know, Again, working in schools in another country and really seeing what some of the challenges were for, uh, for families and, and children in that area. Uh, so that, I'd say that was a, a pretty important experience that helped to shape and, and drive my direction. And then uh, right after uh, undergrad, I worked for a wilderness therapy program, actually in Utah, and uh, I provided um, support to adolescents who were, um, you know, who were experiencing a number of emotional and behavioral uh, challenges themselves. And that, again, helped to um, you know, really foster this desire and passion to help support um, individuals, you know, throughout my career. And so it was after that that I really decided, you know, I need to go back and get get uh, a, a degree, get my higher education degree, um, PhD and master's degree, um, and that really helped to I guess, essentially launch my career. So it sounds like there was some themes that kind of worked early on in your life and then finally came together. And that was really working on improving outcomes for children. And then there was this educational component, the importance of education across all different areas. And then this experience with mental health, both lived experience of your own and, and being around others that were experiencing mental health issues. What is the best thing about being engaged in the work that you do now? Mm. You know, I love getting the opportunity to work both in schools as well as in a clinic setting um, and interfacing with educators and families. Um, I think a passion of mine is is really, again, I've been talking about improving access to, to care. And much of that comes from improving access to information and knowledge uh, for folks. So to empower educators, helping them feel like they've got the tools to support the students in their classrooms and also empowering families with knowledge and information to advocate for their kids. And I think being able to um, do both of those things at the same time in a job is, uh, is pretty, pretty amazing. A couple of other things that I would highlight as well is um, the fact that I also get to work with community organizations to help um, improve their efforts of inclusivity for individuals with disabilities. So working with nonprofit organizations and civic and arts organizations across uh, the across Nashville has been a really exciting opportunity for me. And to get to do that within, within my job is, is pretty exciting. And then lastly, I think just the creativity and the ability to think outside the box um, in the work that I do uh, is really, it's really exciting. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that you really enjoy what you're doing and, I, and it's enjoyable to, to visit with you about it. I'd like to talk a little bit, start broadly with the work that Triad is doing, you and your colleagues. What, what overall are you trying to do with the Triad project? What impacts are you hoping to have on the people that you're serving? And maybe we can talk a little bit about that and then we can shift into some of the specific things that you're directly working on. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Triad is, um, is a, I, I'd say, a broad organization that really 
falls into three primary categories or uh, three primary areas of focus. We have our research arm, we have a clinical arm, and then we also provide outreach supports and services. And so within our uh, research work that we do, we partner with uh, the CDC through the Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network or the ADAM Network, which identifies the rates of autism across the country. We focus on uh, helping to identify the rates of autism within Tennessee. We're also a site for the Simmons Foundation Spark Study aimed at increasing understanding of autism, and recently received a grant through HRSA focused on developing sustainable models of coordinated care across the state. So pretty broad work there in terms of our research. Clinical work, you know, we focus on really increasing access uh, to early identification of autism through physician training and, and also on telehealth clinical models across our state. We also do integrated behavioral health in primary care settings, which is what I'm focused on clinically myself. Our outreach work is where majority of my time is spent. That involves collaborations with Tennessee's early intervention system, building capacity of our Department of Education systems, uh, both early childhood as well as school age services, and then also facilitating successful transitions to adulthood for um, individuals with autism as well. So again, very broad, um, but really focused on consultation and coaching of, uh, of members of our educational department. So could you give us a sense of like how how big this whole thing is for you there in Tennessee like how many how many individuals families are you working with as a as a triad center Oh, wow. It's it's broad. You know, in terms of our outreach work, we provide professional development to educators across the state. And we reach thousands of educators. In fact, you know, we provide thousands of professional development hours through our direct uh, trainings, you know, our live trainings where folks come to, to us or we go to them to different parts of our state and provide trainings. We also um, have been, you know, really significantly increasing our numbers of online training modules. And so those are getting disseminated by facilitators who we've trained across the state uh, to educators and teachers, as well as parents and, and family members as well. So they, through our clinical models, families have access to those online training opportunities as well. So we're really trying to, you know, reach every, each corner of our state, essentially from, you know, Memphis all the way through to Kingsport on the east, eastern side. And how long have you been doing this or how long has Triad been involved in this? So, yeah, so Triad has been engaged in this work for a number of years across our state and has had partnerships with our early intervention system as well as our Department of Education, uh, our school age system for, for many years. What are the big challenges that you see facing the field uh, and the work that you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the biggest um, challenge, and I think this is a systemic challenge across the board, is just organizations, mental health community agencies, recognizing and understanding that individuals with autism can also experience emotional and, uh, and behavioral uh, disabilities as well. So they, there is a, a challenge in the field uh, where many community mental health providers seeing individuals with autism not being able to um, experience uh, anxiety or depression. It oftentimes, uh, many providers will, will um, sort of overshadow or think that the autism is overshadowing those emotional and behavioral challenges. And, and that's just not the case. Um, we've seen that through research and then absolutely through um, practice and, and lived experiences of individuals with autism and a lot of the self-advocacy work that's coming out within the autistic community as well. Just, I'd say that is that is for sure the biggest challenge, and it 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 results in 
uh, many community mental health uh, providers and, and organizations um, actually not working with and not serving individuals with autism who also have significant mental and emotional well-being challenges as well. You know, and sometimes when we talk about this issue, we, we use terms like dual diagnosis or comorbid or co-occurring. Can you talk to just the audience? What When we say something is comorbid, you have an ASD diagnosis and it's comorbid with an emotional disorder, what does that actually mean? Yeah, it essentially just means that um, an individual, you know, meets a diagnostic criteria using the the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, for Mental Disorders, which is the diagnostic uh, tool that's used, but um, that they meet criteria for an autism spectrum disorder, and they also meet criteria for an, another, uh, an emotional or behavioral disorder, whether that be depression, um, a major depressive disorder, or an anxiety disorder as well. You mentioned a little bit about research, and some of the research we, we looked at in preparation for talking with you uh, you know, we've approximately 40% of youth with an ASD diagnosis had at least one comorbid anxiety disorder. Individuals with ASD are four times more likely to experience depression in their lifetime. Why do you think we see these high rates of uh, depression and anxiety in individuals with uh, autism spectrum disorders? You know, I think there's a combination of factors that are increasing that risk. And, you know, we know we've seen through research that individuals, as you just mentioned, uh, with autism are at greater risk for experiencing an emotional or uh, uh, mental health disorder. But some, from what we've seen through the research, you know, some of the increased risk um, is is thought to be associated with some of the characteristics of autism. And I say associated, not caused by, but associated. And, and one of those things um, is, you know, think when we think about uh, the characteristics of autism and those developmental differences. We think about social communication. And so if an individual is is struggling in the areas of social communication, there may be some frustration with communication challenges or even a sense of social isolation that can come from not understanding the social world around you. And that can, in combination with difficulties forming relationships and meaningful relationships and other experiences can, can definitely kind of set the stage or be an increased risk factor to experiencing, say, depression or anxiety as well. In thinking about kind of the restricted and repetitive interests and behaviors kind of area of autism, you know, some of the cognitive rigidity um, might lead to anxiety. There may be some stress associated with transitions. And then also some of the physiological dysregulation due to sensory differences that are um, sometimes experienced by individuals with autism. You know, all of those things can sort of set the stage for, you know, for the development of an emotional or mental health disorder. But then there are also environmental factors, right? There are things that, that all individuals might experience in their life, things like trauma or as a child, adverse childhood experiences, you know, bullying. These things happen can happen to anybody and they can absolutely be experienced by an individual with autism and often, and often are. And so those things can definitely, again, kind of set the stage or be a triggering experience to um, then experience anxiety or depression as well. Thank you. That, that's some very helpful information. I, I'm curious for direct support workers, other clinicians that maybe haven't had as much experience as you have in working with this particular population, are there differences in how anxiety or depression might manifest for someone with ASD that if we had a little bit more education, a little bit more awareness about, we might pick up on so that we could um, be more supportive and, and help with kind of interventions that might be evidence-based? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think the the most important thing to recognize, because 
every single individual is different, right? And is going to experience something different and might present very differently. But the important thing to recognize and to know is what is baseline? What does baseline look like for that individual? Um, and I think this goes for anybody, whether or not the person has a, an autism spectrum disorder or not. But thinking about, you know, what does baseline look like when it comes to their emotional regulation or their um, behavioral responses in, in different situations? And then, you know, is that person experiencing a change from baseline? But when it comes to um, anxiety and depression, there are some slight differences in how these difficulties may present with an individual with autism. So things like for maybe with anxiety for an individual with, say, limited language skills, you may see an increase in avoidant behaviors. Uh, you may see things like um, a decrease in task engagement, refusal maybe to engage in activities that you know are part of that child's or individual's repertoire or activities maybe they previously were successful with and enjoyed and are now kind of avoiding those experiences. If the individual has, uh, you know, maybe stronger language skills, you may see an increase in verbal protests, um, again, around those activities that they once enjoyed. So that change from baseline is, is pretty critical there. So, um, you know, for depression, in addition to kind of traditional depressive symptoms, you may see, we may see an increase in aggression or self-injury. There may be more irritability or kind of mood fluctuations for, um, for individuals. And you may even see a change in restricted interests. So again, interests may take on a greater intensity, they may take on a morbid focus, or there may be an increase in repetitive behaviors. And those are all things that, again, that change from baseline is, is important to, to be able to acknowledge and recognize. So along with like increased awareness and understanding of how these things might manifest differently, and, and I really appreciate your comments about understanding each individual's baseline as really being the place you have to start mm -hmm. to know if things are changing and, and being manifest manifested differently. Are there conventional evidence-based treatments that are effective within working with mm -hmm. the population that you, that you kind of go to and that you encourage other people to consider utilizing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm going to talk about some uh, kind of a, a variety of different things. If, it, you know, if there's somebody working in, say, private practice or more in a clinical setting, then Modified cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to uh, really help to address emotional and behavioral dis uh, challenges or disorders in some individuals with autism. You know, I'm familiar with the Facing Your Fears program um, out of Colorado and Judy Reven's program, which is an adaptation of a cognitive behavioral program for kids with autism focused on uh, individuals or adolescents with both um, co-occurring disorders of autism and anxiety. And again, it's adapted. It uses a lot of visual supports, um, but it, it definitely incorporates those components of cognitive behavioral therapy within it. Another kind of uh, behavioral intervention um, called behavioral activation is another evidence-based treatment primarily used for depression um, that can easily be adapted to use with individuals with autism. And really the focus of that is to increase an individual's opportunities to engage in pleasurable activities that will be rewarding and will increase over time will help to increase a person's mood. And so, you know, it's goal, it's goal directed. Um, it, uh, I also really appreciate the fact that, um, you know, it's, honors and allows for the individual's agency and their ability to really direct, um, you know, what is their goal? What do they want their goal to be? And then with the clinician helping to really hold that individual accountable and support them in uh, gradually over time increasing their level of activity. And then other evidence-based strategies, things that I really work with educators on to help um, help them 
um, implement these strategies in the classroom are things like environmental supports. So things like creating visual boundaries uh, to highlight some of those unspoken social expectations, minimizing distractions to promote a calm environment in the classroom, and using additional visual supports such as schedules and timers and social stories to increase predictability across an individual's school day, which I think can be really important. In addition to kind of setting up the environment for a child to be successful, we want to make sure that we are also teaching coping or emotional regulation strategies and skills. And these are skills that an individual can, you know, a student or a child can take them all the way through their life. These are lifelong skills. But things like progressive muscle relaxation, uh, breath awareness, some of the mindfulness-based stress reduction strategies uh, can be really helpful. The key with those is that you want to make sure that you're teaching them um, at a time when the when the individual is not experiencing a significant amount of distress, um, because that's a really hard time to then engage in that strategy and, and build fluency with it. So you want to make sure you're teaching in um, uh, when you know the individual is calm and able to you know, and able to understand the strategy and practice it, but then also gradually provide those opportunities where there might be a little little increased uh, stress level and they're able to then engage in the strategy maybe with some prompting or support. And then hopefully the plan would be they would feel that, uh, that tension release and, and overall increase their mood. Well, and tying back to what you said in kind of how you got involved in this work, if, if you think about schools being the place where children spend a lot of their time, and you're doing this work with educators, what are you seeing, what differences are you seeing as you go out and work with these educators across Tennessee? What, what are some of the changes maybe they've noted in their own practice or in the outcomes they're having with, with children? What are you seeing as you look at how effective these strategies might be? You know, I think what I'm noticing is that um, educators are feeling more empowered. They're feeling like, wow, there's something that that I can do as as a as a teacher. You know, I'm teaching even though I'm teaching math or I'm teaching social studies or or, or science, I can still provide some supports to help help this my student who may be displaying or experiencing some emotional or behavioral challenges, and I can there's something I can do about it. And I think there's uh, there's you know. A lot of empowerment there for an educator to feel like that, to feel like they've got a tool in their toolbox that is outside of maybe what they were originally trained to do, um, but realizing that to, that in order to help that student um, be able to access learning, they've got to at times address the whole child. Um, and I think you know the state of Tennessee has done a lot of work with helping to uh, increase supports around social and emotional learning or social and personal competencies, and uh, at at kind of uh, at a universal level for all students. And what we're trying to do as Triad is come in and help provide that next level of support for students who might need a little bit more um, and teachers who might need to be able to provide a little bit more support um, across a student's school day. So uh, if anyone listening to the podcast is interested in, in really getting a little bit more in depth with what you're doing on a day-to-day basis in your outreach and learning more about Triad, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, we have uh, many of our uh, online learning products that are available free of charge, and uh, you can just sign up and um, sign up for an account on the VKC Learning Portal. And Jeff, I can send that to you, uh, and maybe that could be linked or uh, posted with the podcast. People can sign up for that, and then you have ac- they will have access to a number of online learning modules and resources related to developmental disabilities and autism and mental health as well. Uh, we have uh, a number of br- our brief online training 
things, we also have an online toolkit for educators to be able to uh, go through and learn some of the strategies that they can implement in the classroom with students. Those sound like wonderful um, resources, and we will certainly link those in the show notes uh, of the podcast. So we appreciate you pointing those out. And we'd encourage uh, those who are interested to really check those out. Can you tell us a little bit more about the mental health and autism work that Triad is engaged in? Yeah, definitely. So uh, about two years ago, um, we developed a line of programming around autism and mental health that included um, several different professional development components. The first was a two-day focus training for educators on mental health and autism, and we did this across the state in East uh, Middle Tennessee and West Tennessee. Uh, then we developed a series of uh, brief online trainings, and these are about 12 to 15 minute um, online modules that folks could watch. And we had them on a variety of different topics spanning from depression in youth with autism and strategies for depression uh, with youth and autism, and, uh, and then an introduction to anxiety. We had ADHD and autism, emotional regulation uh, in youth with autism, and then two modules that were focused on helping educators understand both community-based services as well as understanding medications in autism as well. We created an online toolkit for supporting educators in understanding mental health and autism, and that's something that they can access, anyone can access that. And then we also, um, since rolling out our focus training, have established some partnerships with, um, here in Middle Tennessee, school-based mental health providers who kind of work in more of a tertiary level in school schools. And then we also uh, partnered with the Systems of Care across Tennessee to increase awareness about autism and mental health um, challenges as well. So those are some of the things that we've been able to work on. That is a tremendous amount of things that you've been working on, and that sounds very exciting. I'm curious, one of the things we're trying to do with the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center is amplify the voices of those with a lived experience of a developmental disability and a mental health issue. I'm curious how you and Triad have uh, incorporated the voices of those with this lived experience into your work, how that informs what you do. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, working um, both in education as well as in the clinical world, uh, you know, we are encountering both educators who are working with students in the classroom who are experiencing um, some of these challenges, and then also working with families. Um, and so for me personally, in clinic, I'm working with families and seeing their children who may be coming to see me and are experiencing, you know, mental health challenges and also have a diagnosis of autism. Um, and so the, the work with the families I see and the work with the educators and the students um, with whom I meet with in, in schools across the state absolutely informs um, the work that we do. Verity, can you tell us a little bit about some of the bright spots in this field, some of the progress that we're making as you look across your own work and the work of your colleagues there at Triad? Yes, I think we're definitely increasing awareness um, of autism and co-occurring mental health concerns. I think that's that's across the board. Um, I see that awareness increasing. And I do believe that autistic self-advocates are also speaking up about issues, which is increasingly increasing that awareness, you know, uh, which is which is important. And that's not just within the autistic community, but it's also within the general mental health field um, as a whole. You know, it's we, there's definitely still a long way to go, but I think that the awareness piece is, is really making an impact. Um, it, I think it also helps that there have been, you know, anti-stigma camp campaigns in the mental health field that I think, again, it, in general, is um, in, is increasing awareness over time, which is which is really tremendous. 
When you think about the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities and this awareness that is increasing around this particular issue, what what do you see are the priorities we need to focus on as we move forward, as we as we work to provide better support, better evidence-based interventions, better training for clinicians and direct service workers, better uh, opportunities for individuals with this lived experience to have their voice heard, supports for families. What, where do you see the priorities for the profession and the field as a whole need to focus on? You know, I really feel like the the biggest emphasis needs to be on some policy changes at a systems level. So, you know, recognizing that there are so few community mental health providers and or community mental health organizations that actually serve individuals who are autistic or have autism and also are experiencing emotional and behavioral challenges. Um, that's a huge uh, gaping hole in our service system and our service delivery system. And it needs to be addressed. And I think that through you know policy changes um, within those organizations, increasing that awareness to leadership, you know, folks who are in in charge, so to speak, um, at, within those organizations is going to be really, really important. And then I think once that door opens, once they say, okay, yes, we we do see this as a, as a, a need and an important area to focus on, then pushing the development, professional development for practitioners and clinicians, you know, helping give them the tools to um, feel comfortable and, and be able to efficiently and effectively serve individuals with autism and with emotional and behavioral challenges. So um, I think it the systems do need to change. Um, and some policy and advocacy work is is where I think the focus should be. Really appreciate what you're doing and your colleagues in, in Tennessee and, and the, the resources that you have provided for others outside of Tennessee to be able to access for free is is tremendous. That's that's really going to amplify what can be done with your efforts. So Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for having me. This has been a true pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the MHDD Crossroads podcast. All the links mentioned in this episode are in the description below, and a full transcript can be found at mhddcenter.org on the Voices page. This is also linked below. Follow us on social media at mhddcenter, and be sure to look for us at the AUCD conference in November in Washington, D.C. Thanks for tuning in.